Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. It's like somebody beating you down every day and you keep working hard. The pain on Clarence Shellman's face is evident. And it's not the money. You know, if it was the money, I would still be there. For the former Chargers offensive coordinator, it exists both on the surface and deep inside his core. Money doesn't alleviate that, that mental anguish that you have because you know intuitively, no matter what you do, chances are you're not going to get the opportunity that you so that you may deserve. Football was Shellman's life. It got him out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It gave him a career. It afforded him financial stability. And more than that, it drove Shellman's internal ambitions. Why would you put yourself through that emotionally, mentally, physically, psychologically, year after year after year after year, and you keep producing and nothing tangible happened? Shellman wanted to succeed and become an NFL head coach someday. It's not good for you, mentally or health-wise. I value my happiness, my health, a hell of a lot more than I did than working for the NFL and making six figures. Unfortunately, Shellman's experience is not a unique one for Black coaches in the NFL. I just don't think they see us in those lead chairs. I mean, let's just cut the to the chase, and that's exactly what it is. This is Hugh Jackson, now the head coach at Grambling State. Jackson was an NFL head coach twice with the Raiders and Browns. Minorities weren't meant to be a part of this league when it first started. It took injunction, it took lawsuits, it took different things to get coaches or players to be in, players first to be involved, and then coaches to be involved. Jackson is speaking to how, since its birth, excluding black people has been ingrained in the NFL's DNA. It wasn't intended for black people like him and Shellman to have roles in the league at all. That's where it all started. And I've always said that people have to understand the history of where everything started before we can ever talk about why things are the way they are now. Helping black people achieve career advancement has never been what the NFL is about. With that in mind, it's no surprise that the league has rarely had more than a handful of black head coaches. You have to understand what the league has told you and see it for what it really is and what it's telling you today. Barring a major shift, it's unlikely that the numbers will ever change. I'm Tashawn Reed. This is Between the Lines, Episode 3, The Invisible Ceiling. Black players make up the majority of NFL rosters, but there are currently only three head coaches who identify as black. Dolphins coach Mike McDaniel's father is black, but he considers himself biracial. The higher you go, the harder it is for black men to get jobs. Being excluded because of their race is something that many coaches have had to grapple with long before their careers. Clarence Shellman was no different. 
I grew up in a very difficult situation. My mom was a janitor at the all-white high school in Bossier City, Louisiana. When I went to school, I didn't go to school with white kids. It was uh, segregation. My last semester was my first time ever going to school with white kids. They integrated the schools in the middle of my, my second semester of my senior year. Growing up in the South in the 50s and 60s, Shellman's family was largely just focused on making a living. Young Clarence only began to aspire for more by chance. My mom worked two jobs, so on the weekends she worked for these white people as a cleaning and cooking and ironing clothes, and she would bring home the newspapers. And one day she brought home a newspaper on a Saturday, and I was reading, I must have been 11 or 12 years old, and it's talked about these people from New York who flew to Paris for breakfast and came back. And in my naivety, I was very naive, I thought, I just said, well, you know what? They must have gone to college. They must be really smart. At the time, I didn't know where Paris was, mind you. I just knew it was someplace far away from where I was. Those two things made me want to try to pursue sports and then also get an education. Shellman went on to earn a football scholarship at the University of Houston. He also had a brief stint in the NFL with the New England Patriots, but he was quickly cut. I came back and finished up my college degree, and then I worked one year as a meat packing company. I was a uh, salesman, but I wasn't happy doing that. I decided I wanted to coach football, so I took a job, 5A school in Corpus Christi, Carroll, and I was the offensive car coordinator there, and I installed the Veer, and we were good. And what happened was, after my first year, I was contacted by Homer Smith from United States Military Academy, and apparently they was doing a national search. From what I understand, there were 75 candidates, and I was one of the three that they selected. And that's what got my coaching career uh, started. From there, Shellman spent years as an assistant coach in college before making the jump to the NFL. As he looked around him, he noticed a troubling trend. Black coaches weren't getting the same opportunities as their white counterparts. The head coach hiring cycle ahead of the 1997 season stood out. Ten NFL teams were looking for head coaches. All of the openings went to white men. That offseason, Shellman and eight other black assistant coaches went to the NFL headquarters to meet with then-commissioner Paul Tagliabue. The meeting lasted for six hours. The message? Opportunities needed to increase for black coaches in the game of football. What we was trying to do is try to come up with solutions that would lead to advancement for men of color. And, and he understood it and was very receptive to it. We were supposed to have another meeting and nothing really ever came of it. That was typical of conversations at the time. They hit a dead end. In 1997, there were only three black head coaches in the NFL. Dennis Green, Ray Rhodes, and Tony Dungy. That shifted somewhat with the establishment of the Rooney Rule in 2003, but it wouldn't last. In the years to come, the number of blackhead coaches continued to fluctuate. Shellman took note, but he was still vying to accomplish a goal that was formed after a 1991 conversation with then Rams head coach John Robinson, who gave Shellman his first job in the NFL. And one of the things that was very profound as I was leaving, he said to me, I don't want you to think of yourself as a running back coach. Think of yourself as an offensive coordinator and a future head coach. And that always stuck with me. You know, he didn't have to do that. And he did. And it, it, he don't know it, but that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. Shellman bounced around the league as a running backs coach. After that stint with the Rams, 
He was with the Seahawks and Cowboys before landing with the San Diego Chargers in 2002. First off, Clarence was very intelligent. He understood the game extremely well. Ladanian Tomlinson was in his second year in the league when Shellman was hired by the Chargers. I can say that under Clarence, when he was my position coach and um, offensive coordinator, I learned the most football that I've ever learned in terms of the details of the game, how to read defenses, you know, how to anticipate, you know, these certain blitzes, how to know when these blitzes are coming. All these things, you know, coming out of college, I didn't know. With Shellman, it wasn't just about X's and O's. He developed a genuine connection with Tomlinson and others throughout the roster. Clarence had a, a great way of communicating, so that meant you could come and talk to him about anything. And I would a lot of times go and, and you know, get advice. Then we would get into, you know, obviously his, his passion and his goals. And I, I knew that he wanted to be a head coach one day. Shellman was well-liked among his position group in the locker room, but that didn't mean he was always pleasant. He was balanced in his effort to motivate them to grow. You know, he knew how to communicate with, with players. He knew how to get the best out of you. He knew how to push your buttons, but at the same time, love on you. He knew he just had that, you know, that coach feel to him. There were times where I'm, I'm telling you, he would challenge me and we would go back and forth. But I knew it was all in love that he was trying to get the absolute best out of me. Shellman pushed Tomlinson to adopt a cerebral approach to the game. Tomlinson already had all the physical talent you could ask for, but he had to refine his mentality in order to reach his Hall of Fame potential. 32-yard line, Tomlinson, Sigson, Sanchez, way free! Just like a quarterback reading the coverage and understanding where he might go with the football before the snap. And there he goes! Ladanian Tomlinson with his second touchdown run today. We always hear about Peyton Manning, and, and he's going to understand what you're doing, and you're dead. Honestly, it's the same thing as a, as a running back. Possession, Ladanian Tomlinson. He sneaks by Washington, breaks it free, and the San Diego Chargers have won in overtime. A 41-yard touchdown. If I'm sitting back there, I'm the last man behind the line of scrimmage. I'm looking at the entire defense, and I start to see this movement by the defense. I start to see the linebacker kind of creep, and he's looking. A coach can help you identify what that blitz or what movement is about to happen along the defensive line. Here comes Allen. There's the pass to Latinian Tomlinson, and there he goes. And a foot race with Nate. In for six. What a call. So now I can play my game. I can make them think, oh, I'm going to stay here, but I really know I'm going the other direction. And with my quickness, that allows me to beat everybody where, uh, you know, my normal quickness might give me an eight-yard run. But what Clarence has taught me, that's going to give me 60 yards now. That's the difference. Here's Tomlinson. And there he goes! Ha-ha! LT! Touchdown, Chargers! Under Shellman's coaching, Tomlinson became one of the best players in the league. It culminated in his incredible 2006 season, when he won the NFL's MVP award. Tomlinson, in he goes, and that is four for LaDainian Tomlinson. Four this week. He may obliterate the record by the end of the season. After years of excelling in his role as running backs coach, Chargers head coach Norv Turner promoted Shellman to offensive coordinator in 2007. 
Turner still called the plays, but their immense offensive success was a collaborative effort. North pretty much dealt with the passing game. Clarence was a run game guy, you know, so he would put the run game in and start the run game to the offense. So imagine at the beginning of the week when we're, when we're game planning, what we're going to do, how we're going to attack a team. When it was time to talk about the run game, Clarence would get up in front of, you know, the offense and go through all the run plays and what we're doing. And then when it was time to talk about the passing game, you know, that's when Norv got up and Norv did his thing and he would go through the rest of the offense. And, and then, you know, the way it would work throughout the game, Norv had, if he wanted to run the ball, Norv would say, Clarence, what do you like here? We're going to run it. And Clarence would say, hey, I like X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, Norv would call it. In Shellman's five years as OC for the Chargers, the Chargers twice had the second best offense in the league. But from the outside looking in, the vast majority of that credit went to Turner. There's a, an unwritten rule in the NFL that you have to call plays if you're going to take that next step. But obviously, yeah. it's only applicable to certain people. You know, there's a lot of guys that's, that made head coach that didn't call plays. In alignment with that view, the head coaching interviews didn't materialize for Shellman. It was then that Shellman got a firsthand account of the struggles that black head coaching candidates faced. We all work extremely hard in this, in this business. Quite frankly, I was one of 32 at the top of my profession in the entire world, regardless of what profession they're in, can say they was one of 32. So I know I had the goods to be a head coach. Once I, I didn't get any interviews or anything like that, I just realized that my path as far as being able to have some opportunity to keep going forward, didn't look like it was going to happen. At the end of the 2011 season, Shellman reached a point where he had enough. He was done with being overlooked and put in a box that he didn't create. As I went about my career and I observed the hiring practice of the National Football League throughout my 21-year career in the league, as I observed what went on in Green Bay with Sherman Lewis, he was the offensive coordinator. Guys, who was under him, all went on to get head coaching jobs. He never got an opportunity. Gruden, Andy Reid, Martin Martinwig, I mean, Mike Sherman. So when you know that history, <laughs> it doesn't give you a whole lot of hope. Shellman sat down with his wife, and they mapped out how they wanted the rest of their life to go. They had two options. Number one, Shellman could give up on his aspirations in favor of securing financial security. Number two, he could also just leave the game. As he thought about it, the choice became clear. You know, I, I looked at our situation financially and I didn't want to keep banging my head up against that wall, you know. The emotional, the mental, the psychological, the physical toll it takes on you. I had to get up every morning and look in the mirror at myself. I had to feel good about myself. I could no longer look at myself and know that I was being culpable in regards to the lack of progress in regards to my career. And when you talk about minority coaches, most of us, you know, come from dire situations and we don't, you know, it's hard to walk away from that kind of money. While I could have kept on coaching and make high six figures or what have you, under the circumstances and knowing what I was facing, the money didn't mean that much to me in regards to my integrity, my pride and how I felt about myself after that. So I chose to walk away. Despite only being 59 years old, Shellman retired. He received multiple offers to continue coaching, but turned them all down. 
Shellman wasn't willing to put himself through that any longer. You realize that no matter what you do, sometimes it's not enough. I've always been one that I've worked extremely hard to get where I am because I come from nothing. I'm not going to let someone else determine my happiness. And all of a sudden, I wasn't happy anymore. I knew it was unfair. And so I only had two recourses, stay there, endure that, suffer the emotional, the mental, the psychological distress that being a situation like that put you in, or leave. And for me, the National Football wasn't worth giving the rest of my life to under those conditions. For Shellman, the source of why there remains an opportunity gap between white and black coaches is not hard to identify. The lack of progress during his time and after falls on those who ultimately make the hires. We know who are responsible for the hiring, right? And the firing. It's the owners and the general managers. You know, there's this belief that they don't know us. And when I say us, meaning, meaning people of color. I always ask myself this question. You mean to tell me all those owners, all those general managers, they know all these white guys they hire? I don't think so. So what's the difference? You know, I was with Art Shell a few weeks ago. We was talking about this subject. And he said something to me that was profound. He said, until people find it in their heart to look at you as a human being and not see you anything other than that and judge you by your excellence on the field, it's not going to change. I don't know that you can mandate or legislate hiring practices. It has to be a fundamental change in people's way of thinking in their heart. Coming up after the break, we'll speak to some more diverse coaches about their experiences. They made it apparent that it's no accident that many of the issues Shellman dealt with continue to persist today. Despite having the odds stacked against them, there have been some blackhead coaches who've been able to achieve and sustain career advancement. Come on, we got to be able to concentrate. We cannot make errors down in the red zone. Tony Dungy was controversially fired by the Bucks after leading them to the playoffs for the third consecutive season in 2001. But he immediately landed on his feet as the Colts head coach in 2002. Four seasons into his tenure, Dungy became the first black head coach in league history to win a Super Bowl. To see the Colts of Indianapolis win Super Bowl 41. Dungy won going up against a fellow black man, then Bears head coach Lovey Smith. It was a monumental moment for the game. When Mike Tomlin was hired as Steelers head coach ahead of the following season, there were an NFL record seven black head coaches in the league. It seemed a corner had been turned, but that wasn't the case. Thought things, like you said, were getting better. But things, honestly, were probably at the highest point it could be. And uh, obviously, things have not trended in the right direction since then. Hugh Jackson would become a benefactor of the initial push from the Rooney Rule. After several years working as an offensive coordinator at Cal and USC in the late 90s, he felt stagnant and made the jump to the NFL as Washington's running backs coach in 2001. It was a downgrade, but it was part of his effort to become a head coach. It didn't take him long to realize that would be a difficult task. And then I could really see what was happening. I think some of us don't understand what college football in the league is telling us. 
And I started to see really quickly that if I didn't get into the quarterback room and coach the most important position in pro football, it wasn't going to happen where I was going to have a chance to be a coordinator or a head coach. The year the Rooney Rule was established in 2003, Washington promoted Jackson to offensive coordinator. But after that season, the entire staff was let go, and Jackson was placed on a constant hamster wheel of having to prove himself, bouncing between position coach and coordinator. Every time Jackson ascended to a higher role, the entire coaching staff would get fired. But then Jackson, in 2010, became an OC with the Raiders. This stint would also last just one season, but it was finally good news for Jackson. Raiders owner Al Davis hired him as their new head coach. One thing I'll say about Al Davis, he never saw color. It was about who was the most talented. He gave me an opportunity first to be his coordinator, then to be his head coach, and I'm grateful and thankful for that. Uh, God bless him, and I'm for sure in my heart, if he hadn't passed, I'd still would have been there. Al Davis died during the 2011 season, and his son, Mark Davis, took over the team. Despite the fact that Jackson got off to a promising 7-4 and start before finishing 8-8 eight and eight in his first year on the job, Mark Davis fired him after the season. Oh, that was that was rough. Our counterparts go eight and eight. They don't lose their jobs. That doesn't happen like that. So um, we've seen a man go nine and seven. You know, being Jim Caldwell, lose his job. I've seen myself go eight and eight and lose my job. Those things don't normally trend that way for the other side. So it was tough. And for me, what was tougher is I had to start all over. I couldn't get a job as a quarterback coach or a coordinator. You think that's normally where you go when you're, when you're leaving being the head coach, you go down a notch, you become a coordinator, you become a, a quarterback coach or whatever that is. I had to go coach on defense, you know, with Marvin Lewis, who was my best friend, who gave me a lifeline. His quick exit with the Raiders remains an example of how black head coaches are often given a short leash, even when they have win-loss records that don't typically lead to firings. You know, there's only been a few of them that have come out the other side of this. I mean, kudos to Tony Dungy and Lovey Smith when he was in Chicago and the job that Mike Tomlin's done. I look at us as outliers that way. The job that Marvin Lewis did in Cincinnati for so long without a lot of things that he needed at his side. So I get it, but I think that's what it's been. Commander's coach Ron Rivera, who's Hispanic, is another outlier. He's been a head coach concurrently since getting his first job with the Panthers in 2011. And while Rivera isn't Black, he faced similar hurdles along his journey. I had, uh, I believe it was a total of eight head coaching interviews before I, I landed my first job as a head coach. I honestly never felt like I was fulfilling the Rooney rule. I, I didn't. And maybe because I had a pretty high opinion of myself. So I, I thought, oh, this is, maybe this is for real. Um, but now in a retrospect, I, I almost wonder. Before he was a coach, Rivera was a longtime linebacker with the Bears from 1984 to 1992 that helped them win a Super Bowl in 1986. He tried living as a civilian after he retired, but it didn't fit him. Eventually, his wife Stephanie urged him to return to the game. She said, you know, you, you, you look lost. You, you have no direction. You need to get back into football. What's interesting is the guy that got me started on it was Walter Payton. You know, Walter and I were talking one time uh, at a game and I made a couple of comments about the coaching and he said, how come you're not coaching? I said, well, honestly, I can't, I don't know how to get in. And Walter said, well, why don't you come see me tomorrow? Because at the time he was on the board of directors, of the Chicago Bears, and he called Ed McCaskey and talked to Ed 
I was their first volunteer defensive quality control coach. And uh, from there, I just worked my way up the ladder until I got my opportunity. Rivera became the Eagles linebackers coach in 1999. And one year after the Rooney Rule was established in 2003, he became the Bears defensive coordinator and grew into a head coaching candidate. Rivera didn't take it personally when he wasn't offered the job following his first eight head coaching interviews, but the ninth interview was different. And I do know for a fact, one interview that I was offered, rumors were pretty strong as to who was going to get the job. And hearing the rumors and and understanding they were pretty strong, I declined that interview. So I I was offered a, a ninth one, but I turned that one down just because of, of what you hear when you, know, when you listen to what's going on in the grapevine. So uh, I turned that one down. Rivera's football acumen wasn't in question, but what he lacked was the necessary relationships to push through. Eventually, though, he caught a break. Following his second season with the Bears, he was invited to a diversity and hiring meeting at the Combine with then-commissioner Paul Tagliabu. And what happened was you went to this event, you listened to a couple of speakers, then they had this uh, luncheon that you were able to sit down. Owners were there, general managers were there, presidents were there, the decision makers. We were put in front of the decision makers. And one of the people I got to sit down and have lunch with and talk with was with the Spanos families. I got to talk to Dean Spanos and and get to know him a little bit. And then lo and behold, two years later, I'm, I'm working for them. The Bears didn't renew Rivera's contract after the 2006 season but the Spanos family hired him as the Chargers linebackers coach the next season. The season after that, he was promoted to defensive coordinator. Then in 2010, the then owner of the Panthers, Jerry Richardson, reached out to the Spanos family during Carolina's head coaching search. He called Mr. Spanos and talked to him about me and and my wife, talked to Susie Spanos about us. And because we had developed that relationship, he spoke very highly of me. Mr. Mr. Richardson told me, after he hired me, he told me, I wanted you to know, your previous owner, Mr. Spanos, was very positive about who you could be and thinking that you would succeed. Rivera broke through, but a rough start put his job security in jeopardy. He posted back-to-back losing seasons and struggled to win close games. Given diverse coaches often have a short leash and rarely get another chance after being fired, Rivera was anxious. But again, his relationship with ownership proved to be beneficial. Instead of firing me, my owner worked with me and he helped me get a get an opportunity to sit down and meet with John Madden. And I was able to ask Coach if he'd mentor me and help me through this. And he did and gave me that opportunity. But if my owner hadn't been hadn't been patient, if he hadn't been willing to give me that opportunity, I mean, nobody would have blamed him. I wouldn't have blamed him. Hell, I was very fortunate that, that I had an owner that gave me time, that gave me a chance. The patience paid off. In 2016, Rivera took the Panthers to a Super Bowl appearance in a string of three consecutive seasons of making the playoffs. Stays in bounds. That means this game is over. The Carolina Panthers are NFC champions. And Ron Rivera is going to the Super Bowl. Rivera was ultimately fired by the Panthers after the 2019 season, but the resume he compiled across nine seasons at the helm in Carolina helped him get hired as the commander's head coach in 2020. Among other factors, Rivera believes the lack of opportunity to foster relationships and build trust with decision makers hinders the upward mobility and longevity of diverse coaches. So as we've gone through this, this cycle, 
these last 12 years since I became head coach, you know, we've, we've had some pretty good moments, but then we regressed after that as a league. And that I think was a little disappointing because as I look at it, I think part of the reason we regressed was that program no longer existed. The opportunity to put minority candidates in front of the decision makers, the owners, the presidents, the GMs no longer existed. And so what happened was because there wasn't that opportunity, very few minorities travel in the same type of circles. And, and, and very few of them even have those connections. And so the opportunity wasn't there. The NFL brought back a similar program that will allow diverse candidates to connect with decision makers last offseason. Time will tell whether it produces results. There is another potential avenue to help diverse coaching candidates that doesn't get nearly as much attention. Acting head coaches taking more initiative to put diverse coaches in better positions to move up the ranks. Right now, there are only a few Black offensive coordinators compared to more than a dozen Black defensive coordinators. The league has prioritized hiring head coaches with offensive backgrounds in recent years, which has stagnated the ascension for many defensive coordinators. If more head coaches promoted coaches of color, it would help strengthen the pipeline of diverse head coaching candidates. There are examples of that theory directly correlating with positive results. From both perspectives, from a higher, the, per, the employer perspective and the employee perspective. And so I think it's just important to understand that there are dynamics that are for people that are underrepresented in general. Sean Desai, the Seahawks associate head coach who became the first Indian coordinator in NFL history with the Bears in 2021, is one of them. He had minimal experience when then-Temple head coach Al Golden hired him as a defensive assistant in 2006. And after seven seasons working in the college ranks, the Bears took a flyer on him as a quality control coach in 2013. Eight years later, Desai became Chicago's defensive coordinator. How we can, as an industry and as a profession, try to uh, optimize our representation based on merit, you know, giving people opportunities to earn certain roles. And then when they're in those roles, supporting them so they can be successful. And I think that's really important uh, when you're talking about underrepresentation, uh, regardless of the minority group you're talking about. Whether it's owners, general managers, or head coaches, it's vital for diverse coaching candidates to develop strong relationships with decision makers. Desai set out to build authentic relationships in addition to focusing on his work as a coach. But that's only one part of the equation. Networking is a two-way street that requires collaboration. So myself, I got to be really actively uh, trying to build relationships and in an authentic way. You know, I don't think you can be the guy that's just networking all the time. And then on the other end of the street, you need people that are willing to build relationships with you. And they got to be willing to recognize and see your work and applaud your work when you do great work. Obviously, in the conversation, race and representation is important, but it's really a power issue. You know, when, when people in certain power roles have the ability to uplift others and recognize others that are not in those power roles, I think you got to be able to do that. But that means you got to have an open mind. You know, you got to have an open mind and be willing to get outside your comfort zone and step outside of a, a tight network uh, that sometimes uh, closes certain people off to opportunities. You know, you got to be accessible. The perspective of most NFL decision makers remains narrow. After the break, we'll home in on the hard truths about why that is. To listen to every episode of Between the Lines ad-free and bonus full-length interviews with people like Doug Williams, Bamani Jones, Hugh Jackson, and more, subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus exclusively on Apple Podcasts. 
white people fundamentally believe that black people are intellectually inferior. And at some point, we just have to drill in on that fact. HBO and ESPN's Bomani Jones is speaking about an ideology that goes back thousands of years and extends far beyond sports. But in this case, Jones is referring to the NFL's hiring practices. Given the number of qualified diverse coaching candidates, it's hard to identify another reason for the seemingly endless lack of diverse head coaches. That's the constant through all these decades of history where we've had these ups and downs and changes in these things and everything else. But when it really comes back down to it is the people who make the hiring decisions. I don't think that they are going to look at two candidates and think the black candidate is obviously and clearly superior and then go with the white candidate. I just don't think so. They are looking at these candidates and just somehow always believe that the white one is better. And I don't know why it just works out as some kind of quirky coinkadink that it always goes that way. But I don't like I don't think these people are intentionally operating at the expense of the bottom line in making these decisions. I think they legitimately believe whether they realize it consciously or not, that when they see that white man come up, that's a head coach. That's what the head coach appears to be to them. And so the black dudes are typically going to be the ones who ultimately lose. The athletic national NFL reporter Mike Sando has reported on the lack of diversity in the hiring process in the NFL for years. When you go to interview for a job, they're not just opening the door uh, and saying, you know what, we're going to reinvent this position and we're just going to interview 50 people and we're going to take the best one. Sometimes they already know, the owner already knows who they're going to hire. And that's been very difficult to defeat. Even if they bring in people for an interview, they're still going to hire so-and-so. Sando has spoken to black coaches who say the lack of clarity when it comes to what NFL owners and general managers want makes it difficult to decipher what criteria to aim for. I think it's an extremely frustrating process you know, to the extent that people could be required to say why the why they hired somebody is really the only extent to which we can evaluate the hiring, right? Because right now we're sort of like, uh, they like this person, but we're not 100% sure why they chose them over this other person. They're not really accountable for that. I think in a lot in other jobs and other businesses, sometimes there is a process that could be analyzed better. This is a little bit of a mystery where even the people who don't get the job aren't really sure, okay, what was it again? From the ownership level, there's been a lack of willingness to engage in those conversations. There's some hard realities that people like actually have to confront. So you always wind up in this trick bag where when it's time to figure out what the solutions are for matters of race, we always ask black people and I'm like, yo, if I actually had the answer, I personally would have been done fixing this. I have great incentive to do such things. It's white people that don't have the urgency and the impetus to get behind this. And I think part of it is just the difficulty for so many of them and so many people to just square up and just be like, no, nah, the more I think about it, yeah, I realize consciously or otherwise, I just don't look at black people as my first choice for intellectual positions. As former NFL head coach Hugh Jackson points out, the types of candidates that decision makers consider often excludes black people. To me, it's become a league of analytics. So if you're not an analytic guy, and us as minorities, we don't, not that we don't understand it, not that we don't want to deal with it, but we're our own algorithm. You know, we've worked our tails off to get to where we are. So if you're not in that, that particular space, they don't see you that way. And it's the young Caucasian guys who are supposedly the, the very bright guys that are getting these opportunities, you know, all the time. And it's just the way it's been. 
there's no shortage of awareness about the fact that the NFL has a diversity problem among its head coaching ranks. Despite that, owners haven't shown they're willing to change. Why would they? League is growing. It's making a ton of money. People are watching football at a high level. Why do you need to change it? Why do, why do they really need to do anything different? There's no money coming out of their pockets. There's nothing that's saying the, the game is slowing down or people are mad because this is not going right. We have a cycle of a day or maybe a day and a half where people talk about the issue and then it goes away, right? So tell me what is going to make them do anything about it. Nothing. So at the end of the day, that's why nothing gets done. Until somebody really hits it where it really hurts, which is in their pocket, you know, and, and that's not going to happen because people love sport, right? People love football. And so they know this. So they placate to a lot of the other things that, you know, that we try to do. But at the same time, it's not going to move the needle. League-mandated legislation is another option. But there are limits there, too. Former player and NFL Players Association representative Don Davis doubts there's much more the league can do. Education is one thing. Awareness is one thing. Action is another. I don't know what other rules, what other legislation can be put in place to encourage those in power to hire more minorities. I, I, I honestly, I just, I just have no idea. I mean, I think at this point, you might just have to, which, which is hard to say, mandate it. But you, I, think, I think you just got to say, look, y'all just got to hire some more Black folks, period. As a Black head coach, I've heard some who were in the pipeline say, well, I don't want you to hire me because I'm Black. I want you to hire me because I'm the best candidate. And I would just say, while I, am, I, I applaud that and I understand what you're saying, no, I want you to just hire him because he's Black. And let's just try that out and see. I think there's some others who have gotten it, you know, not because they're white, but race played a, played a part, and you allowed them an opportunity. Such extreme in-house mandates will likely never happen. As has been the case historically, the force that changes things will probably have to come externally. Oh, no, you got to take them to court, right? Like, we got the Rooney rule because somebody took them to court. You get free agency because somebody took them to court. That is the thing that they respect. Like, this level of money and power, that's the thing that they respect. They respect lawyers. That's taking it out back to fight in their world is to take this thing to the courthouse. Like, oh, you got a problem with it? Let's square up. All right, well, let me call my lawyer. And then we square up and then we go about it. That, to me, is going to be the thing and has always been the case. Again, the Rooney Rule came about because they did not want to go to court with Johnny Cochran. Probably a wise play, fundamentally, when they decided to do that. Vikings defensive coordinator Brian Flores did just that with his bombshell class action lawsuit against the league in 2022. Is the NFL racist? I think the numbers speak for themselves. There's one black head coach. The former Dolphins head coach sued the Giants, Broncos, Dolphins, and the NFL for alleged racial discrimination. The Miami Dolphins fired him after back-to-back winning seasons. Flores and his attorneys have now filed a class action lawsuit alleging discrimination against black coaches. In the lawsuit, Flores presented a text message from Patriots coach Bill Belichick that indicated the Giants decided to hire Brian Dayball as head coach before they began their interview process, which would have been a violation of the Rooney Rule. Bill Belichick thought he was texting Brian Dayball. Turns out he was texting Brian Flores. A series of texts. One of them, the final one, says, Sorry, I bleeped this up. I think they're naming Brian Dable. I'm sorry about that. Flores also accused the Broncos of a similarly flawed interview process in 2019 and said the Dolphins asked him to intentionally lose games early on in his coaching tenure. 
Flores has since been joined in his lawsuit by 49ers defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes, who was the Panthers' interim head coach last year, and former NFL assistant Ray Horton. Commissioner Roger Goodell is telling owners that the league does not have enough head coaches of color. That follows a lawsuit by fired Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores accusing the NFL of racial discrimination in hiring. The league had said those allegations are without merit. It's probably not a coincidence that following Flores' lawsuit, the league went from one to four black head coaches, has grown to a league record eight black GMs, and now has a league record five black team presidents. As Ron Rivera highlights, it's always taken that sort of pressure to garner change within the NFL. I think at some point you have to do something to, to promote, help promote the change. If speaking out's the right thing to do, then speaking out is what you should do. You know, that's easy for me to say. But I, I just think what Coach Flores is doing is, is, is a testament to his character. Um, and a couple of those coaches that have followed suit, I, I, I hey, kudos to them. You know, because it is unfortunate. Uh, and, and I think if, if we all take a step back and, and look at some of the successes we've had, people have had, you would be willing, I think, to say, you know, these guys deserve opportunities or they deserve a second chance or they deserve the same type of opportunities that other people have got. You know, I, I used to I used to tell people, you know, we live in the land of opportunity, but it doesn't mean everybody's opportunities are the same. But after the initial push following Flores' lawsuit, going into the 2023 season, there will still be just four blackhead coaches. It's a clear sign that it's far too early to say whether Flores' lawsuit will evolve into a long-term solution. Many, like Hugh Jackson, are skeptical that it will. I don't, because if it did, why hasn't it? It's been there, you know? I mean, he's still coaching in the league, I get it. I mean, it's an ongoing effect, until when? I mean, that if that really happened, which I believe it did, uh, and he dealt with it, why are they not pushing forward on it to resolve it? Either way things go from here with Flores, he still pointed out an unavoidable fact. Diversity is the league's greatest issue, from top to bottom. Thank you for listening to Between the Lines. Deshaun Reed is the creator and host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers. And special thanks to Robert Mays and Michael Beller.